and open up to John chapter 15. If you're using the church Bible in front of you, that's page 764 again. John chapter 15, verses 7 to 17. This morning I'd like to introduce you to a new family who are going to start attending CBC next Sunday. Now this is fictitious, so use your imagination, okay? They're uh, Dale and Jennifer Smith, and uh, they have two children, Caleb, who's 12, and Miranda, who's 8. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about their life, and, and to help us picture it, I'm going to use a circle to represent each set of life involvements that they have which includes uh, relationships which they manage in their lives. So the first circle, of course, is their family, the four of them. Uh, then Dale has his job, which takes 50 hours out of his week. At work, he has a secretary, and he has two separate teams that he's part of. We'll say that those are two circles there. He also plays on the local tennis league, and he's gotten to know several of the other players, so there's another circle. Jennifer works part-time, and uh, there are half a dozen other people in her office where she works. They like to go out together occasionally and uh, to remember each other's special occasions. She also works out at the gym where she's gotten to know um, several of the regulars there. Caleb, of course, has his school friends, several um, that are in the bulk of his classes, another group he eats lunch with who he's known from elementary school, and uh, another group in the school band where he plays the saxophone. Uh, to keep things simple, we'll just make all that one circle, even though it's probably three. Um, Caleb also plays soccer on the Community Travel League, and he cuts the grass for a couple of the neighbors. Miranda has her friends at school, and uh, her, the class she's in has a habit of they, they all invite each other to each other's birthday parties, so that keeps her social life fairly busy. She also has dance lessons. And she has a couple of friends on her block who she still plays with after school. They're not the same families that Caleb cuts grass for, though, so different circle. Uh, Jennifer, the mom, is on the PTA at Miranda's school. Uh, she helps out with various fundraisers for both of her kids' activities. And in addition to all these circles, there's also their extended family. Uh, Dale's parents live locally, and uh, so they try to see them at least once a month. Jennifer's parents are, are divorced. Her mother lives alone in Boston, and her father is remarried and lives in Chicago, so there's two separate circles there for her parents. Both have siblings scattered around the country, so uh, there are phone calls and birthday cards, Christmas presents for the nieces and nephews, and trips now and then to visit family. Dale also has several college buddies who he's kept up with over the years. They try to get together now and then. And Jennifer has a friend from a former job who she stays in touch with. At this point, the Smiths get involved in CBC. And uh, <laughs> Dale plays the bass, so we quickly recruit him for the worship band, right? Uh, we also invite him to get involved in the men's Bible study. Uh, those are separate circles because they involve relationships with two separate groups of people. Uh, Jennifer starts attending woman to woman. And uh, she's very organized, so we have her, our eye on her for an MST position, but we won't add that circle quite yet. Um, Caleb gets involved in a youth group, and Miranda joins a Sunday school class. Does that all seem pretty realistic? Yeah. 
Um, so here are some questions. Is this way of life normal? Is it healthy? Does life have to be this way? <laughs> We've got all kinds of answers going through our heads, coming out of our mouths. Um, are there any negatives to living this way? Do, uh, do the positives outweigh the negatives? Um, and what does the gospel, what does the kingdom of God have to say about this lifestyle? All right, so these are the questions we want to keep in mind as we look in today's passage, and then we'll come back to the Smiths later. Today's passage is spoken by Jesus to his close followers around a dinner table in an upper room in Jerusalem. Earlier in the evening, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He's also celebrated the Passover with them and invited them to see in the bread and in the cup of that meal his own body and blood, which he would soon give for them. After dinner, Jesus has begun preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. He's going back to the Father by dying on a cross and rising again and then ascending back to God's side in heaven. Meanwhile, his disciples are going to be remaining in the world, continuing God's mission that Jesus has begun, testifying to Jesus throughout the world. Along the way, Jesus tells them they'll be rejected and persecuted. But Jesus will send them the Holy Spirit to, to strengthen and comfort and guide them, teaching them what to say, giving them power to do greater things than Jesus did, keeping them in close relationship with Jesus and his Father. In this context, we now come to John chapter 15, and in the opening verses of John 15, immediately before our passage, there are these words which are very familiar to us, where Jesus compares himself to a vine and says that his followers are his branches. If we remain in him, if we abide in Jesus, we will bear much fruit. And apart from him, the vine, we can do nothing. With this analogy, Jesus is describing what things will be like when Jesus leaves his followers to continue his mission on earth. Though he will be in heaven, Jesus will nevertheless be the life from which we draw our sustenance through the Holy Spirit so that we can carry on the work, bearing much fruit, carrying on Jesus' work, that is, helping Jesus' kingdom to grow and people to come to follow Jesus and find healing and restoration and reconciliation. Now, in our passage, in verses 7 to 17, Jesus unpacks more of what this vine and branch imagery means. And the first thing that I want us to notice about today's passage, which Jesus really stresses in verse 8 and then down again at the end of the passage in verse 16, is this. On the mission that God has sent us on, God really wants us to bear fruit. If you know your theology, then you may know what the main purpose of human beings is. Um, it's famously stated in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man and woman is what? Does anyone know it? To to, a lot of us know it. Great. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That, that, let's focus on the glorifying God part here. H how do we glorify God? 
That's our purpose. Well, verse 8 tells us a major way that we glorify God. This is to my Father's glory, Jesus says, that you bear much fruit. And in verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you to do what? To go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. God really wants us to bear fruit. That's a big part of what our, our purpose is and of, of what Jesus has chosen his followers for. So question, why aren't we more fruitful? Why don't our lives look more like Jesus' life? Why don't we more reflect Jesus' character? Why don't our lives have more of the, the kingdom power and the, more of the transforming impact that Jesus set as an example for us? Is it due to a lack of willingness on God's part or a lack of willingness on our part? Well, Jesus is insisting that God is more than willing. But are we willing or are we ignorant? Do we, do we fail to understand how bearing fruit happens, how Jesus can make us fruitful? Well, in verse 15, Jesus fills us in, right? He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. In this passage, Jesus makes known to us how we can glorify God and thus fulfill our purpose. In this passage, Jesus lets us know the secret to bearing fruit. Because we're not servants who are just required to do whatever we're told and to not ask questions. No, we're friends who have been let into Jesus's, God's confidence. Jesus is letting us in on God's purposes, on God's goals, and on God's methods. Jesus is explaining how his mission to the world works, and he's inviting us to be a part of it. Are you ready to peer into the mystery of God's ways? This is exciting. This is God's mind. This is how God's kingdom works. This is how we fulfill our purpose and produce God's fruit. Ready? Verse 9. Here's the secret. It all flows out of God's love. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. It's all about love. It all begins with God's love, the God who is love. God the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father back. The Spirit is all wrapped up in this love that, that is shared between the Father and the Son. Think of Jesus' life. God so loved his Son Jesus that Jesus' whole life bore fruit. Jesus was secure in his father's love. So Jesus was confident. Jesus was joyful. Why? Because Jesus knew he was loved. I don't know if any of you remember the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona. During the, the 400 meter race, that's the one that's one lap around the track, Great Britain's Derek Redmond was in contention to fulfill his lifelong dream of winning the gold medal in that event. And as the race went on and he entered the back stretch of the race, he tore his hamstring and went sprawling onto the track. 
as everyone else raced by him. In a sheer act of, of will, he struggled to his feet in excruciating pain, and he began hopping to the finish line. And then suddenly, Derek's father bounded out of the stands, past a security guard, threw his arms on the track around his son, and, and in a voice choked with emotion, he whispered, come on, son, let's finish this together. And the crowd cheered and they wept as they watched this father half carrying his wounded son jerkily down the stretch and across the finish line. That's the kind of father that Jesus has. And so Jesus has courage. Jesus has resolve. Jesus has strength to pursue his mission. And in verse 9, Jesus says to us, the way my father loves you, loves me, that's how I love you. I love you just that much. That's why I'm going to lay down my life for you. After all, what greater expression of love is there than the one who's willing to lay down their life for a friend? That's the kind of love I have for you, Jesus says. And that's the kind of love my father has for me. That's the kind of love that, that is within God. That's the kind of love which is at the very heart of the universe. That's the kind of love which is the very ground of being, the very essence of reality. Love really does make the world go round. It's what matters most. And Jesus has come to share that love with us. That love is the key to who we are. It's the key to our purpose. There, there's no fruit without it. And as we'll see as we continue, we're called not only to, to receive and to enjoy that love, but to share it with others. That's why the title of this message is Making Room for Relationships. And so the question for Dale and for Jennifer, for Caleb and Miranda is going to be, what is the quality of their relationships? How much room for love is there in their lives? Because as followers of Jesus, the Smiths are called to be fruitful. And fruitfulness is about love. Jesus was fruitful because Jesus was, was loved. He was deeply loved by his father. And Jesus was fruitful because Jesus loved so much so that he laid down his life for us. And we can be fruitful. We can fulfill our, our purpose in life because we are loved too. Jesus and his father love us deeply. And so now at the end of verse 9, Jesus says to us, remain in my love. Remain in my love. How do we remain in Jesus' love? Well, of course, we've got to remember it, we've got to treasure it, we've got to seek it, we've got to enjoy it. But look what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. To remain in Jesus' love, we have to keep his commands. Now, um, we might say, I knew it was too good to be true. <laughs> I knew there must be a catch. But, but before we give up on Jesus, because this word command is so antithetical to American society today, let's hear Jesus out, okay? 
Because what does Jesus say next in verse 10? He says, keep my commands just as I have kept my father's commands. Now, at this point, we're at a disadvantage compared to Jesus' first disciples because Jesus' first disciples had seen firsthand how Jesus had kept his father's commands. And what kind of life did Jesus' obedience to his father's commands produce? Well, Jesus was always going around loving people, deeply impacting people so that their hearts were touched and they were transformed. And far from being a spoil sport, keeping his father's commands very often landed Jesus at parties. So much so that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus hung out in the process of keeping his father's commands with all kinds of people, many of whom were not church-going types. And because he kept Jesus' commands, Jesus was secure, he was peaceful, he was free. He was joyful. And all of that flowed from keeping in his father's commands and thus remaining in his father's love. In fact, what does Jesus say in verse 11 about why he's told his followers to keep his commands? He says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. What do Jesus' commands get us? Not burden, not dreariness. No, joy, the kind of joy that Jesus knew because of his father's love. And if your Christianity is focused on, on what people shouldn't do and, and you think that you shouldn't be too happy, at least in church, then get to know Jesus. Jesus wants us to have the joy that he has and he wants our joy to be complete. Well, what kind of commands could Jesus give us that would actually bring joy to our lives? Well, here's an interesting factoid about John's gospel. Jesus only gives one command in John's gospel. Do you know what it is? It's in verses 12 and 17 of our passage. Love each other as I have loved you. That's the only direct command Jesus gives in John's gospel the only one John records for us. Um, because when you have that one, all, all of the others pretty much fall into place. And you can read the other Gospels to find what some of the subsets, the, the different aspects of love are. But this command to love is challenging, right? We're, we're to love like Jesus loved us. And how did Jesus love us? Again, verse 13, greater love is no one than this, to lay down our life for one's friends. That's how Jesus commands us to love one another. God loved us so much that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we will remain in that love as we lay down our lives for one another. And the way we remain in God's love, in other words, is by giving that love away to others. You see, God's love is too big, it's too rich to be able to keep it to ourselves. It has to be given away. So as the Father pours out his love on his son Jesus, the son is, is filled with joy and he gives away that love to us. And then he says, do you want to be joyful and fruitful too? Remain in my love. Give it away to others. All right, so let's summarize this passage. 
God wants us to fulfill our purpose and to glorify God. How? By bearing much fruit. And the secret to bearing fruit involves learning from Jesus how to do it. And because we're Jesus' friends, he has let us in on the secret. He has, has let us in on God's mind. It's all about love. Because God is love. The Father loves the Son. As a result, Jesus' life is joyful, it's fruitful, it's abundant. And love this great is too great to keep to yourself. And so the Son turns around and loves us. And he invites us to remain in his love. And how do we remain? We give his love away to others. As we do, Jesus promises that we will know the joy that he knew and that we will bear much fruit. And then Jesus adds one more thing. Now that you know God's mind, now that you know how all this works, if you live this way, you can ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. God will answer your prayers because he wants you to bear much fruit. All right, so that's this passage. And how now we want to ask, does all this apply to the Smiths? This family who will begin attending CBC next week. How do we help them to live out the love that Jesus talks about in this passage? How do we help them to have a life that's joyful and fruitful, full of love? How do we help them to make room for love? How do we help them to make room for relationships? Well, the first question is, is their life just fine the way it is? And songwriter Sarah Groves addresses this question in her song, Just One More Thing. Uh, she sings about uh, the lives of people like the Smiths. Everything is urgent and everything is now. I wonder what would really happen if I stopped somehow. I'll be there in a minute, just a few places to go. You wake up a few years later and your kids are grown. And everything is important, but everything is not. At the end of your life, your relationships are all you've got. And then she concludes, and love to me is when you put down that one more thing and say, I've got something better to do. And love to me is when you walk out on that one more thing and say nothing will come between me and you, not even one thing. So let me make some observations about the Smiths' lives based on what I've read from various psychologists and sociologists about American life today, as well as my own experiences with my own life struggling with this and people I've known and cared about. First observation, it's very likely that even though the Smiths know a lot of people that they have very few quality relationships. Why? Well, for one thing, they, they have so many people in their lives, they don't have time to relate to any of them in a significant way. Most of their interactions with people are probably a quick phone call, an email, a text message, um, or a five-minute hi and goodbye, which is barely enough interaction to, to keep up on the basics of the other person's life, let alone to, to uh, get deeper into how the other person's really doing. Second observation, maintaining all of these circles requires a lot of driving, and uh, driving diminishes community. 
The, the Smiths are driving to work, to soccer practice, to dance lessons, maybe to and from school, to the gym, to Bible study, not to mention to the store, to the doctor, et cetera, et cetera. Robert Putnam, a researcher at Harvard, uh, wrote in his uh, best-selling book, Bowling Alone, several years ago, that for every 10 minutes of driving we add to our day, we cut our capacity for community by 10%. That's why uh, most American families gave up long ago having dinner together as a family. They, they spend too many of their evenings in the car, or more likely in multiple cars, eating takeout on the run. Third observation. Based on the Smith's lifestyle, there's a pretty good chance that they are lonely. They're around people all day long, but, but many of them they hardly know. I've heard the phrase crowded loneliness used to describe lives today. A 2006 study in American Sociological Review found that while in 1985, 10% of Americans had no close friends to confide in, by 2006, the number was up to 25%, with another 19% who have only one such friend, usually a spouse. And there are reams of medical uh, evidence that loneliness is literally a killer. If you're lonely, your chances of getting cancer, heart disease, and a host of other medical problems goes up as drastically as if you're a smoker. Why? Well, because people are not impersonal machines. God made us for relationships. God made us for love the love that is at the very heart of the universe. Fourth observation. There's a good chance that the Smith's family life is under strain. As we saw, they probably don't eat together regularly. Parents today are, are often so stressed and so distracted that they don't spend much time with their kids. Um, and so their kids are on their own to raise one another. And they're also raised by the TV and the internet. Um, and marriages are, are stressed because it's hard for, for spouses to find time and energy even to, to talk to one another beyond the necessary business of, of juggling schedules and rides and getting the bills paid. So how much room is there for love in the Smiths' lives? All right, now let's bring church into the Smiths' life. Getting involved in church is is going to add more circles to the Smith's already crowded life. At least uh, the way we've been doing church this past century. And so if we're not careful, church is going to, to pull this family further apart. It's going to increase their stress. It's going to make them more lonely. You know, an interesting result of the spiritual growth survey we did last month as a church related to the question, do you have at least one close friend at CBC? And for those, um, or what we found uh, on that question was that there was a big difference in how CBCers answered it depending on their age. For those over 45 years old, over 90% said, yes, I have a close friend at CBC. But for those under 45, only about 50% said they had a close friend, which is a huge difference. And there could be several reasons for it. I, I wonder if part of it is 
that our younger people who are in the thick of, of raising kids or, or who maybe are single or newly married but, but grew up in a world where everyone is juggling so many circles, maybe they're so busy, they're pulled in so many directions that, that they have very few close friends, not only at church, but anywhere. Let's notice something else uh, about the Smiths' relationship to church. None of their church circles overlap any of their other circles, which means two things. One, it means there's no incentive or encouragement that they be the same people in the rest of their lives that they are at church. And two, church has no direct impact on the places where or the people with whom the Smiths live their lives. Instead, church is nicely hermetically sealed off in its own parallel world. Which means that, that people that the Smiths know aren't going to ever experience the love and the good news of Jesus, which we get to experience here at CBC if, if these circles don't get overlapped. So how do we as a church help the Smiths make room for relationships? How do we help them to live out the love that Jesus wants for them so that they can be fruitful and joyful in God's kingdom. Well, what if for starters, we as a church could take a couple circles off the Smith's plate? And what if they were willing to slow down a little bit and drop a few of their other circles as well? Oh, we went ahead, that's okay. And, Looking at this next one, what if instead of adding circles to their life, CBC could help them somehow overlap a church circle or two with some of their other circles, which by the way is what our missional communities are trying to do. That would accomplish two things. First, it would allow the Smiths to spend more time with fewer people, allowing their relationships to go deeper, hopefully reducing their stress somewhat, and giving them more time and energy to love. Second, the relationships and, and the love that the Smiths were growing into and the joy that they were experiencing with God and with God's people would be right there where their friends outside of church circles could experience it and see it happening. The life of Jesus would be being incarnated and lived out right where people were so that people could taste the kingdom fruit. All right, so that's the Smiths, but what about us? Here's the question for us to take home. How about you? Can, can you live the life that you're currently living and live the life of love that Jesus is calling you to live? And if not, will you work to make room for relationships? For those of you who come to discussion group today, we'll be talking about our circles and trying to figure out what that practically looks like.